This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. In the architecture and construction industry, delegated design refers to the process where certain design responsibilities are transferred from architects to contractors during the construction phase. This collaboration is considered crucial in ensuring that the project progresses smoothly from design to implementation. Contractors armed with their on-the-ground experience and expertise take on specific design tasks to optimize construction processes and ensure feasibility of the architectural vision. Welcome to episode 145, Will Delegated Design Kill Us All? Today's episode is generously brought to you with support from Peterson, manufacturer of pack-clad architectural metal cladding system. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today, Andrew and I are going to talk about delegated design, and to a lesser degree, maybe just on the periphery, because I don't know how we can avoid it, design assist. And we'll probably sprinkle a little bit of the Spearin doctrine into our conversations as well. And if you don't know what that is, today is your lucky day. Exactly. <laughs> Legal precedent. Ready. Yes. Box checked. Yes. So to be honest, I don't really know how the show's going to go. <laughs> but mostly that's not because we didn't prepare or whatever, but I don't think I'm going to be as glib as I normally am because I didn't even know that delegated design existed until a few years ago. And for someone who spent the majority of their professional career in small offices where if I wanted something designed and built, I had to figure it out myself. You know, that's just what it was. Yeah. The idea of delegated design make my face hurt to reference a long, you got to be a deep fan to get that reference. But I've done a lot of research for the show and it might be possible that I have a different opinion of it now after done the research. I mean, really, isn't that how these shows? Before and after you started? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let me just set the table. We do actually learn stuff when we do this. <laughs> Well, you know, it's kind of that idea that if you want to learn something, you need to teach it because the act of teaching it means yeah. you have to know it so well, you need to be able to argue both sides of any particular point. So when somebody says A, you're mm -hmm. like, well, here's B. And if they come at you with B, then you're ready with A. So I had a preconceived understanding of what this meant. And very vague, as far as I knew, I never had to deal with it before. And it kind of manifested itself because we'd have certain things that would take place in our office. And we do some pretty complicated stuff. We're not just like dusting off details from past sure. projects and just combining them together to make something new. Yep. I mean, <laughs> rubber stamping it all. Yeah. There's one of the hallmarks of terrible businessmen architects. And that is you reinvent the wheel for every single thing all the time. Yeah. And we do a lot of that. It's fun. That's why you, we do it. We don't do it because it's bad business or good business. We do it because it's fun to do it. And we do some pretty complicated stuff. In my brain, there are times when I'll be redlining a drawing and I'm like, man, we haven't told anybody like how to do this. And they're like, well, yeah, they're going to help us figure this out. And I'm like, no, wrong. That's the wrong answer. That's not how this works. Yeah. And they're all looking at me like, in this specific regard, like I'm a psychopath. 
like what I'm saying is unreasonable. And in my brain, I'm like, it's unreasonable that you're designing something that you have no idea how they're going to build it. Because how do you document it? Yeah. And they're like, you're adorable. Small firm background guy. <laughs> so I've read up about it. And I, you know, there's a lot of things that I'm going to say for the very end of it that is the summary of my journey through delegated design and design assist. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a good topic we should get into because if it's somewhat new to me or nuanced for me, probably that way for a lot of people. So that's what we're going to get into today. Yeah, let's do it. I said that like Andrew doesn't know what we're... Andrew knows. (laughs) Like I've just introduced, (laughs) hey, Andrew, we're talking about delegated design today. You cool with that? Yeah, let's do it. Andrew's prepared as well. So Yeah, 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 yeah. So let's start off the show just by setting the table. And saying what delegated design actually is, right? As a starter, as a primer for this conversation. So delegated design is a strategic approach to project delivery that leverages all the unique skills and insights of both architects and contractors. So the idea is it allows contractors to play a more active role in the design process, contributing their knowledge. I mean, things that they know how to do because they do them as opposed to what we believe to be true sometimes but allows them to use their knowledge on methods and materials, logistics, sequencing comes into it. And by collaborating closely, hopefully, with architects, contractors can address potential challenges early on, which should lead to more efficient construction timelines and ultimately more successful projects. All right, so that's that's paragraph one. Oh, one, I guess, of what delegated design is. Yes. The idealized version. Yes. Correct. That is the <laughs> idealized version of this. I'm just, yeah. I'm not dogging it out yet. I'm just saying like, that's the idealized version. Yeah. This is, this is what it's supposed to be. Like when you have a concept, that's yes. like, Hey, we're going to put something in place. This is how we want it to function. This is, this is the goal. So we're setting it up. Mm-hmm. So through delegated design, the idea is architects can delegate. That's why it's called delegated. They delegate certain tasks to the contractors, such as, I don't know, systems integration, how things come together, certain detailing aspects of it. But the architects don't relinquish overall design control. So this approach is supposed to foster a more collaborative environment. That's the word of this episode, really, is collaboration and collaborative. The idea is that it's a collaborative environment. Architects and contractors work together to achieve the goals that all parties have, which is a successful project. Everything does what it's supposed to do. Came in under budget, or at least on budget. And on time and all the... Yes. Everything that's that's laid out to the way that's projects right. are supposed to, with giant air quotes, work. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and it's because, hey, we're combining what we're good at and we're leveraging contractors' practical expertise, right? They're in the field knowledge. So this collaborative nature of delegated design promotes communication and coordination between us and contractors and between this shared understanding of project objectives and requirements. Equal sign is, yes, great, lovely. However, there are some challenges that can arise if the expectations are not clearly communicated or if there's any lack of alignment between the design and the construction team, which The part that that is, is the part that just sits in the very front of my brain. So when I was thinking we should talk about delegated design, it has to do with 
okay, how does it work? How do you document it? What are you asking them to do? What do they feel empowered to concede or accept or reject? Is that important to you? And they're like, no, we're not going to do that. And you're like, wait, that's super important. Like that, <laughs> we need that. That has to be stone. They're like, cardboard would be better. Yeah. So there's a lot of communication objectives that need to be met. Open communication, which is really, that should be good for all of it. But if you don't have it, there could be a misalignment between the design and construction teams. And when you have that kind of effective collaboration and that clear delineation of roles and responsibilities, you're going to end up with a successful delegated design project. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious. I mean, you mentioned some stuff that gets delegated and, and maybe now's not the time, maybe you're planning on later, but to discuss things that you guys actually delegate. In my mind, it's always even larger things like fire suppression systems and yes. prefab metal structures and prefab stairs, Correct. curtain wall systems, and maybe even these days, heavy timber or mass timber systems mm -hmm. that we don't get into the weeds in reality. We give them a spec, but we're not getting into the weeds over it. I'd be curious as to what, if those are the kind of things that you guys do, or if there's even more that you guys delegate. No, and see, so that's the thing that I found interesting in my research about this, because I kind of lumped delegated design and design assist together. It's kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. And they're not. Yeah. Which wasn't something that was, it wasn't front of mind that they were different. So there's building systems, so like you, fire suppression's a great one. Yeah. We say, here's how it's supposed to work, and we want to control, like it needs to be in alignment. But we're not telling people, like, somebody else is designing that system. The whole thing. That's all they do. That's their job. And they're great at it. Why wouldn't we want to leverage that? Yeah. So, yeah, those things exist all the time. It's when we try to do some kind of clever design feature. I'll use reception desk mm. as a really small nugget-sized bite. Mm -hmm. Let's say I want to do a really cool stone reception desk, and I want to make it look like it's floating off the ground and have these cuts in there. and. I don't really know how to detail the stone that way. Do they carve it? And yeah, to make it work exactly. Three yeah. different pieces, or do they gluing up 500 pieces? Or in my, my brain is like, well, I should know how that's going to work because the way that I detail it is going to shape what it looks like. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a fundamental aspect to it. And there's a lot of times when we just kind of go, all right, well, this is the vision that we have. And we're going to kick it to the mill worker and the stone person in the GC. And we're all going to collaborate to get this vision of this thing mm -hmm. realized. And the thing that kind of set me off about that was the amount of back and forth that has to happen. Like we draw something and I'm saying, I'm not saying we do it. I'm trying to create an idealized case study here. Mm -hmm. So let's say we, we draw some, we design it. It looks cool. And then we got to send it out to these three different groups for them to look at and weigh in and tell us how to do it. And then they send it back. We go, no, that's not what we want. We want some more like this. And they're like, well, you can't really do that. You got to do something like this. And now it costs 800 times more than what you thought it was going to be because you didn't really know what you're doing. You know, it just goes back and forth. Of course. Yeah. Next thing you know, you've spent 5x the amount of time solving a problem that I don't know, maybe with one X of the time, you could have come to the conclusion that I need to change something here because what I want is unreasonable for the budget that I'm trying to stay within. That's part of it. Yeah. But at the same time, the shortcoming to that process, you know, because in my, I don't want to say my past life, when all I did was residential, 
That sort of collaboration happened all the time. But I didn't show up with just a picture of something that I like, and they're like, oh, we can get it close to that. I brought people in and had conversations during the design process to figure out what we were trying to do and can we do it. By going through that process, there are times when I feel like we might be hampering our own creativity because our inability to solve something that this person over here that actually does that work all day finds simple and easy to do, Uh but me not understanding that I can do this might impact how I design things because my own limitations are holding me back. I got you. It still comes down to the importance of what collaboration is in communication. So in that sense, even though I didn't put a name to it, delegated design and design assist, those are things that I've been doing my whole career without really realizing that I was doing it. But the process is just a little just a little bit different in a firm of eight than it is in a firm of a hundred. So Yeah, my stance would be that it's also a little bit there's a little bit more formality to it. Especially let's say delegated design where I'm writing performance spec for the sprinkler system yeah. as opposed to working out how it's going to get installed on site once it's already been designed by that person and approved. There are some liability and legal things that are different about that. But yeah, the idea is the same, I guess. Well, I think that's a pretty important distinction to talk about the formalization of that responsibility. Yeah. Residential firms, unless they're pretty high end projects, they have short form specs. Mm hmm. And sometimes I'd say, oh, you might be lucky to get those. Yeah, it says, this is the brick on the drawing. That's what it is. <laughs> I mean, not quite that bad, but I mean, yeah. It's- I will tell you, when I was early 2000, 2003, 4, 5, that kind of thing, the residential houses that we were drawing at the time, which were nice and they were expensive, mm-hmm. we had a short form spec that covered the things that we felt that we wanted dominion over. And the whole thing was 11 pages. Mm-hmm. That was it. Yeah, 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 that was it. And we didn't have like storage and handling as part of our, and there weren't like, oh, you need to meet ASTM standards. It wasn't three-part specs. It was, yeah. it wasn't like that. It's much more uh, application kind of things than it was anything else, I'm sure. Well, but at that time, you're like, I'm doing this because if I go to that nth degree, I'm just adding money to the project because like we talked about before, when when you draw too much, there's some contractors that go, Mm -hmm. all right, I'm going to charge X amount per sheet. The fussy factor. You yeah, know, kind they of just thing. balk at it. Yeah, extra. But what ends up happening is you realize that what you don't put in those specs is giving the contractor some design control over what they have access to or what they can get mm-hmm. at a more comfortable price point. Or you're bringing them in as part of the design or the creative process. So that when you say, I want to cantilever this 100 feet. And they're like, that's a bad idea, and here's why. Yeah, yeah. So we've always talked about the idea that if the architect and the contractor, this is always my goal, we sit on the same side of the table. We're never on the opposite side of the table. We have the same goals. We have the same objectives. I want you to make money. I want to yeah. make money. We both want the client to be super happy. And we both want the client to be super happy, yeah. And yeah. recommend us for more projects. Like, Everything. Yeah. yeah. yeah we yeah. could be in alignment. On this, but you got to communicate well and you got to say, these are what my expectations are so that I don't, mm-hmm. you know what I want, but you also know enough to tell me things to protect me from myself at times, the more practical aspects. Mm-hmm. So we should talk a little bit about, cause, well, one, because I wrote them down, so I feel like I did the work, so I'm going to put it in here. But, <laughs> you know, there's certain benefits to using 
utilizing delegated design. And these are not necessarily in order. I mean, I could put them in order in my brain while I'm saying this, but when I started writing them down, the things that I thought made this a worthwhile process, streamlined decision-making came up. Mm -hmm. That was a really big one because delegated design allows us to focus on overarching design vision and key creative elements of a project while transferring certain design responsibilities to the contractor. And in doing so, we streamline the decision-making processes and, allo and allow contractors to allocate time and resources more efficiently or effectively. Both words are applicable in this case. Mm -hmm. I'm laying out some parameters of this is what's really important to me, and I'm allowing some sponginess and collaboration in this process so that they can say, I can do this more easily than I can do that. Is this acceptable? Like, you know, they're part of the process. Mm -hmm. Streamlined decision-making, that equals less expensive projects and typically faster projects to point of completion. Win-win. Yeah. The next one I have on this list, risk mitigation. I would say risk transference, but yeah. <laughs> okay. Literally, what I, the definition I wrote down here was by transferring <laughs> certain design responsibilities to contractors through delegated design, architects can mitigate risks associated with design errors or deficiencies. Contractors assume responsibility for specific design elements, reducing the architect's liability and providing an additional layer of protection against potential legal disputes or claims. Now, I hated writing that. Because it sounds like a cover your butt, pass the buck thing. And that's pass the not buck my kind of jam. thing. Yeah. Not, that's not my jam. Mm -hmm. Especially if, after I just got through saying, yeah. hey, we're both on the same side of the table here. We got the same goals. And I'm like, that's on you, bro. <laughs> so I, I don't like that. But what I can recognize it is that by allowing these contractors that we will collaborate with, allowing them a voice at during the process of creating it, there's shared responsibility in the end product. That's really what this is about. That's a much more friendly way of describing it. One that's more, um, it's clear and collaborative. It's not, hey, I'm passing the buck so that you have some exposure here. It's we're in this together. We have the same objective and we're going to rely on our collective experience and genius to make sure this gets executed in a way that everybody's happy. Yeah. I don't know what else is on your list, but I think that there's a lot of it too, at least for any of the stuff that I've ever dealt with for delegated design, it's all about specialization, stuff that I'm not going to be specialized in to do. And, you know, nine times out of 10, they know a subcontractor or someone that specializes in whatever that is that we're delegating. Yeah. They get to choose the people. This will end up in the cons list, I'm sure, but they get to choose the people that they are comfortable with and know how to do that thing that we're asking them to do. Yeah. So we're giving them a little bit of flexibility or allowances in that regard to, to find the people that they know that does the sprinkler system and they've worked with them in the past and they know they do a good job. Cons of that may be coming, but. So what you just described is number three on my list. Okay. Pretty good timing, <laughs> which is expertise in detailing and integration. Yeah. So delegating specific design tasks, such as detailing system integration, like doing sprinkler systems to contractors and individuals who specialize in these areas allows architects to leverage the genius and expertise of those people. Mm -hmm. Contractors can provide incredibly valuable input on the technical details. 
and the results are typically a better, more seamless integration of various building systems, which ultimately are going to enhance the overall quality and performance of the project. And the way I've kind of said this over the years is this is what you do all day, every day. Why would I ever think I'm going to show up and tell you how to do it? It, that has never made sense to me. Not putting a name to it, this is something that's been happening in my world for 30 years. There wasn't the legalese for it in my world. And there wasn't certainly anything, I don't know, formalized as we kind of talked about yeah, earlier. Contractual, right? It, it wasn't that kind of thing. Yeah. More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. Andrew and I are joined today by Ken Holler, Architectural Representative, Northeast U.S. Region for Peterson, maker of pack-clad architectural metal cladding systems. Ken has been with Peterson since 2017. He has been focused on the exterior envelope since 2010 and has held a variety of sales positions in the building materials business, working for manufacturers and building distributors for over 35 years. Hi, Ken. Thanks for being with us this morning. It's good to see you again. Great to see you again, Andrew and Bob. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. We kind of chatted before we hit the record button to talk about 2024, and I know you guys are super busy. Great start. That's good news for everybody. So let's get into this as we're here today to talk about how Peterson supports architects and suppliers. And the easiest way for everyone to start that conversation is to go to the website, which is pack-clad.com. Let's talk about the website a minute. Yeah, so great example of this is yesterday I got a call from an architect asking me about some details on our AL panel. He and I hopped on our website together, went through the details that he was looking for, and basically worked with him to design that wall system and give him a deliverable system that he could put in the hands of the installer in the field. That's nice. That's some white glove service there for sure. And that happens more than you would think. That's the kind of thing we really want to dig into. Well, there's a lot of information on the website. In addition to just looking at details, there's testing information. There's sustainability information. You can find your local rep. We can find the Ken Holler version that's in my area. That's exactly right. And we use these reps every day. Mm. They'll work with the architect. They'll come to me with some questions and things. I work with those rep groups every single day, and they do an awesome job of relating that information back through the system so that we can get them all the information, get the architect everything they need. Our goal here is to build that beautiful, sustainable building that will perform beyond the expectations of the occupants and the owners for years to come. So touching on sales reps a little bit, what all can we as architects count on sales reps to do, to help us do? Find the details, find contractors. Big part of what they do is help run jobs back through distribution so that we get the right contractors on the job, kind of head that lead in the right direction and support all the details that are needed and specifications, doing submittals and specs. So we can go on the website with the e-tools and provide the architect with all the submittals and the specs in a nice, clean package. Yeah, sounds good. That's nice. You know, one of the things I like about my sales rep is that they deal with this product all day, every day, and they are experts. So even sometimes when 
I like to pretend I know what I'm talking about, and I think I know what I'm talking about. You get a little bit of, oh, hold the brakes there for a minute. Let's look at something else that might be better suited. So sales reps are a great resource. The real challenge is when you look at the architect's job, deal with every aspect of the building. Yeah. How can you expect to know, you know, where as reps, we're focused on one piece of the building. That's where we work together and collaborate. Well, let's do an extension of that and talk about the technical department because they are the experts. When we have questions, a lot of times we'll end up speaking to someone in the technical department and the depth of what they know is pretty profound. It really is. And a good example of that, I'm working on a project now that's got this art roof. It's got six inches of insulation. The contractor wants to put nail base on the top layer. And a question from the architect, myself, and the tech team came back as to whether they could use that nail base on that top layer Mm. and how it was going to integrate and telegraph through to the panel itself. And the tech team was great. They came in and made some recommendations, talked about where we should be putting our air, water, and vapor barriers. I mean, it was really just a complete design consultation through the tech team. That's wonderful. Well, Ken, thanks for coming on the show this morning to talk about all the white glove, high touch service that PatClad provides to architects. Thanks for having us. I got to tell you, this kind of thing is the thing that really gets us up and moving every day. That's nice. We want to provide that kind of service and make sure the architectural community is covered with every need they have. We enjoy that kind of service. (laughs) (laughs) You can find your local representative at pack-clad.com by clicking the rep locator at the top of the website. Or you can send an email to info at pack-clad.com or call 1-800-PAC-CLAD. Okay, so that kind of segues into... Number four on the list, which is optimize construction processes. Hmm. I want to say we're kind of getting to a gray area, not because it's hard to describe, but there's overlap that's starting to take place between all the benefits of this process. Contractors equipped with all this practical, hands-on, day-to-day knowledge that we keep mentioning, both in methods and materials, can contribute wildly valuable insights during the design phase through the process of delegated design. This is the collaboration we're talking about that ideally ensures that the design decisions that are made align with practical construction considerations. And that's super important. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I can say it more clearly, but if you think about that design decisions align with practical construction considerations. I talk about this with a lot of the junior designers all the time. Like we were doing a detail for this nice porch expansion for this project that we're having. And we're talking about the detailing of it. And I'm like, you don't want to detail it that way. And the reason you don't is because it's going to involve a weird phasing of the trades to come out and do stuff. And sequencing is off. Yeah. You want to have this guy come out and do all his stuff? I mean, just because I know it, in this case, anyone who's done this for a little while would know it. I'm not special or unique in any way in this, but this is new to this young man that I was working with. And I'm like, we can just get rid of this bit right here. And you've just saved this guy from having to come out on a repeat trip to do this little teeny tiny bit of fussiness to it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And a lot of times you could just 
contractors see that a mile away. Yeah, yeah. You know, and they'll say, you don't want to do that. Again, when you have good collaborative relationships with these folks, that's going to happen. But it also argues, hey, get your contractors involved early. And that is something I will say in the last 20 plus years that I've been doing this, contractors are getting involved more and more frequently early and earlier in the process, Mm -hmm. which according to everything we're saying is a good thing. So I feel like, I mean, I don't know. I'm not trying to disagree with you here on this. You can. No, but I think a lot of the stuff that you're talking about right now, to me, falls more into the design assist than it does the delegate design as the way that those things are laid out. But (laughs) Well, we're about to get into that. Yeah. Aren't we? I don't disagree with what you're saying, but I think that from my experience with what delegated design is and how it works, that's the most formalized version of what we're talking about, where there are yes. contracts and specifications that said, this is what I want for like the sprinkler system or metal structures or the curtain wall. The contractors aren't involved in that until later in the process, but in design assist, they're much earlier. Well, yes, yes, that's clearly true. But let's let's take curtain wall as an example. Yeah. Man, we start working on curtain wall stuff really, really early. Sure. And we get specialists in really, really early. And it's not something where we just say, here's what we want as written down in words. Mm-hmm. Here's a 3D model of kind of what we're doing. Yeah. And they disappear and they bring back a finished product. Yeah. I mean, it's not necessarily the contractor. It's a vendor. It's a provider. Yeah. Which is where I place design assist. Yes. I guess that's kind of what my point is. Sure. Okay. Or the way that I look at it, but I got you. Okay. Well, the last one I had on my list was improved coordination, which we just kind of got through talking about. Again, hopefully. Yeah. I don't know if we're going to get to it because I've got a couple of horror stories about delegated design that like blow up. No, let's do it. Why would we wait? Well, I mean. Let's do it. (laughs) In the true sense, where I write a spec about this is what I want, it's happened with sprinkler systems and with pre-manufactured metal buildings where you just push that off and you make assumptions about how that's going to work as an architect. And then at some point, the contractor hires the person to do that delegated design and they do it radically different, even though the result is the same, but they do it radically different than you thought that they were going to do it. (laughs) And then you end up having to modify a bunch of stuff in construction or you spend a lot of time working through submittals and submittals and submittals to get it back to where you're like, no, this is what we had in mind, even though what you did it, I guess, met our criteria. Where those things, to me, that's where it gets to be possibly negative, have negative impacts on all the things that we're talking about that are the good stuff. Yeah. I mean, you have to make adjustments and you deal with it, but that those kinds of things that you don't necessarily, they're complicated things because there are assumptions made, I guess, really in the beginning about, oh, well, we're going to delegate design for that. And then turns out the circumstances don't allow for happen the way you want. Yeah, no, I get that. But with the metal buildings, I've adjusted so many structural column placements and wraps and stuff because we'll plan for a 12 by 12 member and they're going to come in with a 16 by 12 member because they can make the steel weigh less or they can, sometimes you can't really, because they're meeting the specification that you gave, it's hard to push back. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good example to really provide some clarity to the delegated design and some of the downside to it. And that is the, not just the back and forth of how to do something from a design standpoint but what it impacts and what you have to change to support this proposed solution. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're saying, you, you made assumptions and you might go, they're perfectly reasonable assumptions. We send it out and it comes back checking all the boxes, but it's blown up 20 other things that are associated around what we've documented. Yeah. 
I can't come back and hit them with the stick and going, you blew it. And they're like, well, we did what you asked us to do per this specification, performance yeah. specification that you put out there. So that's on you to deal with at this point. Yeah. You could come back and say, well, maybe it was, I didn't write my spec tight enough. If I had somebody else write the specification, they didn't write it tight enough. Yeah. You know, I've had a couple of times where it's like we're scrambling because some column in a bathroom caused accessibility issues, right? Because it, it got two inches bigger. Didn't matter anywhere else in the whole project, but somehow it landed in that bathroom and now it's two inches bigger in one direction. And you're like, oh, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So when that happened to you, did you find it out during shop drawings? Yeah. Or did you find it out when you're standing there looking at it? <laughs> no, no. You find it out during shop drawings. Because for delegated design, and I read some interesting things from the AA and a couple of attorney websites where they're talking about how when you review delegated design submittals, the things you are and aren't supposed to do, you'd normally check math and you'd look at quantities and all those kind of things. And then from the legal perspective, you shouldn't be doing those things on delegated design because you're actually opening yourself up to liability for that, even though you're not supposed to be liable for it. Yeah. Which I thought was kind of strange. And it goes against my every core to like check every dimension and make sure everything adds up and all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, you know, I read a couple of legal instances where they're like, don't do it. Don't do it. That's their job, not your job. And you're like, okay. I can imagine you're like, I'm just twitching while I'm doing like stamping it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. So let's pivot a little bit. And when I say a little bit, I mean, you're already saying that part of what the way I've been describing it, we're talking about design assist. And in my defense, I did say that the difference between delegated design and design assist in a lot of ways, my perception of it is just a, a small pivot. It's a periphery kind of thing. Mm -hmm. From a legal standpoint, it's not really. But the process, who you bring in and when you bring them in and what you're asking people to do and how that has an impact on your business from a time standpoint, from a, I don't know, like I was saying, whether or not you limit your creative boundaries yeah, because you'll only work with things you know how to do. Yeah. How much you're giving away. Yeah. So Design Assist offers a distinct approach to collaboration in the construction industry where specialized consultants are brought into the project team to support the architect in addressing constructability issues, refining design details, and unlike delegated design, where the contractor assumes responsibility for specific design elements, design assist consultants work alongside the architect to enhance the overall design process. Yeah, right? exactly. So it's a good definition. And this collaborative effort focuses on early identification and resolution of potential challenges, of things that would contribute to the project's success through, I would say, proactive problem solving and expertise in specialized areas. And superficially, you do see that in the, I don't know a good way to describe it. I guess this is a better place where the reception desk kind of figures into it. Or I know in the past, when I've done a lot of steel, decorative steel work, mm -hmm. steel finishes. Yeah. Or even in our most recent office, there were a couple steel details that we wanted to put in. And I'm talking to the, the guy who was the fabricator and the installer. And we spent more time than you would think about screw design, not just <laughs> placement. Yeah. Not just placement, but the actual screw itself. and how, yeah. Right, what yeah. does it look like in the finish on the screw? And I need to coordinate that with the finish that we're going to put on this decorative metal that we have going in. And 
I mean, there was a lot that went into it. And there was a certain amount where I go, well, I need you to tell me how many screws I need because I can calculate how much the steel is going to weigh, but I can't figure out my liquid nail to screw ratio. Yeah. And I don't want to just go put a lot in there. Just throw darts at it and go, yeah, that's good. That's enough. Yeah. Yeah. He goes, this will work. This is, this is what you need. Like that kind of, and then we go, all right, well now I can design the screw pattern that I want because I know what I got to work with. Yeah. And that was a very collaborative process. That particular guy, the steel fabricator, we brought him in during SD. <laughs> wow, that is early. Well, one, because I'm crazy. I mean, not bad. I'm just saying that is really early, though. Yeah, but see, that was the process that I went through my entire career. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm designing it, and I got to draw it, and I go, I don't know how I can, I don't know how to design it if I don't understand how to make it. Mm-hmm. Because how you make it is going to influence what it looks like. And here's another one. I remember working with, when I did the cabin up in Wisconsin, at one point, we were going to have wood on the lower level and it ended up turning out to be hardy board, board and batten kind of system. And we mm. value engineered it down, but it was going to be this Ipe wood. Oh yeah. The client was like, I don't want bugs to eat it. And I go, I got just the wood for you. Yeah. And we, we had come up with this pattern. Super expensive wood, but let's do it. That wasn't really the challenge on this project, quite honestly. Yeah, I know. I know. But we had different width boards. So we were doing a pattern instead mm. of just going, mm-hmm. oh, we're all all one by sixes or all yeah, one by two. But we had twos, threes, fours, and sixes, and a couple of eights, you know, and there's this great pattern. And one of the trips when I went up there, and we had drawn it, but we did not detail the corners at this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I was trying to figure out, do I want to lap them? Do I want to miter them? I don't want them to expand and I get wavy joints. I'm not a big fan of the 45. Do I do a curve detail? Do I do a piece of metal, like an X? kind of inverted yeah. X pattern. So I have a negative corner. Like I have all these details and I'm just checking the finish on the wood and I'm just chatting up the guy at the mill shop. He goes, Oh, I got a cool detail for this. And he pulled out these two pieces of wood where he did this like rabbit quirk miter detail. And when you put these two things together at the corner rocks, I'm like, I mean, it was hard to get them apart and they weren't, screwed or glued or anything nice. it was just like slid and snapped into place yeah and it was flawless <laughs> and it was it had a tiny little cork miter in the corner maybe like an eighth of an inch mm-hmm. but it was on a 45 and it was two pieces came together it's one of those things that you'd want to just like leave a piece setting out so that people could look at it and understand what's actually that they're not seeing in the finished product yeah how cool it is yeah that was one of the singular details that when we ended up removing that wood from the lower level that broke my heart because i was like and i've been trying to find you're like i need that detail just can i just go yeah keep a copy of it that you should have had some for your desk and just take it back with you oh i know <laughs> i mean i could ring the guy up and go hey you know what and he'd just be a nice guy for doing that i sure. have photos of it it's whether or not i can find them i mean i'm sure they're on the server of another company's hardware drive but hey but it's one of those things that guy brought up something that i said you know i don't know how to solve this problem this is what I'm dealing with. And he's like, Psh, got a way better way to solve that problem. <laughs> Check this out. And I yeah. was like, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was really cool. So when considering the merits of delegated design versus design assist, it's pretty important to weigh both the positive and the negative aspects of each approach. Delegated design can expedite project timelines by leveraging the contractor's expertise and streamline decision-making processes, something we've already talked about. However, it also poses challenges such as potential miscommunication and increased liability for the contractor. 
Design Assist, on the other hand, offers a comprehensive approach to addressing constructability issues and refining design details, which in theory enhance overall quality of the project. It might require, and I'm rolling my eyes when I say it might require additional time and resources. My experience 100% requires more time and resources when you go through that process. Because there's always a, even if it's great communication, there's always like a slight bump or a disconnect between my creative genius vision and their practical application <laughs> solution. Well, it's like when I work with structure engineers on this project, they always go like, put this in and it'll work. And you're like, but that looks terrible. Can we be more? Yeah. I probably designed more structural engineering details on my residential projects than structural engineers have. Mm-hmm. And I go, I need you to size it. I don't need you to, like, this is terrible. What you drew is hideous, and people are going to see this. And they're like, it ain't going to fall down. My bar is higher than that. Yeah, it's got a 30% factor of safety on it, and it's not going to fall over. Yeah. So it's up to the architect. And, you know, and we've had some contractors. They're like, nope, we don't do delegated design. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to one of the managing officers in the firm today, telling him what we're going to be talking about. And he mentioned a firm here in town. He goes, they won't do it. Like they will not do delegate design. And it's because of the additional liability. Yeah, the liability that they assume. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, puts on them. Yeah, for sure. You know, and I still think, you know, I still struggle with the idea that like I get I'm gonna do egress stairs, metal stairs, concrete pan. Like I, I totally get why we would wanna say, look, this is your jam. Like we're gonna let you do it. Yeah. You got this. You got this. It's already very systemized. Just like curtain walls, right? It's a very systemized thing. And it's just a matter of knowing how to Get the right assemblies together to make it work the way it needs to work, but it's still very, very systemized. And those guys know all of the little, they know the little pieces in the part. Like, oh well, well this needs a yes FJ ninety two, and then we're going to put an F nine fifty four, and it's going to be awesome. You're like, okay, <laughs> yeah, and you're it's going to expand in four directions, and we need to have like, yeah, yes, yeah, that's yeah. why you're here. Thank you, love this, yes. But the challenges of when somebody says we're not going to take on this responsibility. It always makes me think of the story when Joshua Prince Ramus came down here right before the Wiley Theater opened up, which mm-hmm. is a project here in Dallas. Mm-hmm. And this was back in the day where people still confused me with actual press. And so I got invited <laughs> with other press people to go hear him speak about the project. Oh, speak? Yeah, there's only like 12 of us in the room. Interesting, yeah. And he basically was giving this presentation to like, you know, the Dallas Architectural Forum, probably later that day or in some kind of like buy a ticket kind of thing. But Mm -hmm. he's taking questions and talking about the building for people to write articles about it. And he talked about how when he came down for the ribbon cutting, everybody got, had hard hats. And he got his hard hat and he, you know, he did his ribbon cutting and he goes back to the hotel. He takes off his hard hat and he throws it on the bed, right? It's like, a, I mean, I, I doubt he was wearing it. He was just carrying it, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Makes it sound like he's returning to yeah, his Yeah, he's just walking room. around town with the hard hat on. So I'm just going, yeah. <laughs> wearing his hard hat all day. So anyway, he had it or whatever and he threw it on the bed and he noticed that there was a sticker on the inside of it. And he goes and he looks at it. And in the presentation, there's a picture of the hard hat on his hotel bed. Mm-hmm. You can see that there is a sticker. A sticker, sure. You don't know what it is. So then the next picture is, a zoomed in picture on the on the sticker and it basically said this is a toy yeah this is not a hard hat that you can use for a constructor this site. is not a real hard hat and not that i'm pretty sure he knew that 
it was not a real hard hat, like it's just for taking the photos kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But he used that as a jump off point to talk about how architects are marginalizing their role in the process by abdicating, you know, the front end part to bankers and developers and all that kind of stuff. And then we're giving away all the back end stuff to the contractors and, and we're just leaving this tiny little carved out sliver. All I do is design. I just do this little bit in the middle because it's the least amount of risk and exposure. Mm-hmm. Bankers, investors, and developers, they got all this financial risk that they're taking on in the beginning. Contractor, they've got all this risk on the back end if the thing doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. My job is to make it look good. And he railed on that for a while. And it resonated with me. I'm like, yes. I'm like, hand in the air. I'm like, preach it. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know that, I bet that even on that project oh i know on his project how they work with folks to solve certain problems because he talked about on that project that some of the things that theater asked him to do is they go we want to be cutting edge we don't want to be bleeding edge like we don't want you to use any tech or any kind of methodologies that have not already been proved out to work Mm -hmm. and so in that theater and i'm not going to put anything in the post on it because you can go read it all you want like you can do theater in the round and the thrust that like yeah, it's a, it's a pretty interesting, like, cool thing that it all yes, it does. Yeah, it moves like crazy. It's kind of a transformer. <laughs> yes, and the technology they use to move things around is the same, base, basically the hoist system they use for... Stage props and stuff. Like basketball, no, for oh. like arenas. Oh, really? Like when they hang the scoreboard. Interesting. And so people can see it. Well, that thing moves, and he goes, that's the technology we use to be able to move the theater stuff around, was basically arena old school techno i mean like yeah yeah they're like you can't invent something new to solve this problem you got to use stuff that exists already so that allows them to look at and go all right well we can delegate and design assistance out to certain things because we're not reinventing the wheel here Mm -hmm. we're going to leverage people that already know how to do this and they've solved this problem not this exact way but they're familiar with all the tech and i would bet at that time he had never done a sports arena I don't know that he's done one now, to be honest with you, but why would they know about that stuff? They're like, get that guy in here. They know how to do this. We don't. So there is one section left or to be aware of. Again, I'll admit my ignorance on this. I'd never heard of this until you actually brought it up on a show a while ago. Yeah, I don't recall, but I'm sure I've I've heard of it before. (laughs) Yeah. And it's the Spearin Doctrine. Mm -hmm. And if you decide that, oh... Bob and Andrew, or basically Bob or whatever, like I don't really understand this. I'm fuzzy on it, and you want to go do a little research on your own to kind of understand what this is. You're going to run into things where it tells you that you need to take the Spear and Doctrine into some sort of consideration into this entire process. Like the note that I have down here is recognize the impact on the Spear and Doctrine. So when a contractor performs delegated design work on a project, It may erode their ability to rely on the owner's implied warranty of adequacy of the plans and specifications. That's what that is. So it shows up, and I was like, well, I need to know more about the Spearin Doctrine. Yeah. So I looked it up. And so for those people that are like me that don't know it off the top of their head, here's what it is. Spearin Doctrine. A hundred years ago. (laughs) Yeah, it stemmed from a a landmark U.S. Supreme Court case, Mm -hmm. United States v. Spearin. And it established a significant legal principle that impacted the construction industry. 
but basically at its core, the doctrine asserts that when a contractor follows the plans and specifications provided by the owner, the owner implicitly warrants the adequacy and sufficiency of those plans and specifications. In other words, if the project encounters any issues due to faulty plans and specifications, the contractor can't be held responsible for the resulting defects or delays. Mm-hmm. Right? That's your understanding of it as well, all right? Yes. So this doctrine plays a pretty crucial role in balancing the responsibilities and liabilities of all the parties involved in these construction projects. So like for architects, the Spearn Doctrine serves as a shield against unwarranted liability stemming from design errors or deficiencies in project plans and specifications by establishing the owner's implied warranty and adequacy of project plans. The doctrine helps architects focus on their core responsibilities of design and coordination without undue fear of legal repercussions for issues beyond their control. Great. So we love it. Architects are probably pretty happy that the spirit, didn't you say that Texas, Texas just adopted it in 2021. Yeah. How about to that? We were under a different one that was called the Lonergan doctrine, which was actually that it was more about contractors, but it, it was almost the exact opposite that contractors were responsible for ensuring the adequacy and implementing the plans correctly, even if the plans were wrong, essentially, or the project correctly, even if the plans were wrong. And that's the other thing I found out I wasn't sure about, but when I went back to double check, not every state, even now, has adopted the Spear and Doctrine. I couldn't find an exact number. I searched hours. <laughs> no. And maybe I just wasn't looking right, but I tried to find a map. I tried to find anything that says, you know, which states have and haven't, but everything says most, but it, it says not all. So mileage varies by state <laughs> at this point <laughs> on, whether, on whether or not this is an impactful thing to you. Because I was reading about a case in 2017 where Missouri just ended up incorporating that into the stuff that they were doing. So it's around, but it's not 100% around. I guess. Yeah. So you could just say, despite the advantages of the protection you get from the Spear and Doctrine, it does not absolve you, you being architects, of responsibility for errors and omissions in their own designs. We still got to exercise our due diligence in our own design process to ensure that the work that we create meets professional standards to mitigate the risk of legal disputes. And architects should also be aware that Spear and Doctrine may not offer absolute protection in all situations that legal interpretations of its applications may vary. Yeah. I put that in there because I pulled it off the AIA website. <laughs> yeah. And it sounded important. I'm not really sure. Yeah, I was going to say, in some instances, it, it does protect us, but it also it allows the contract to possibly prove that you know, we did things incorrectly. Yeah. In order for that thing to be enacted, there are a couple of different checkboxes they have to prove in order to say that the drawings were inadequate, but they're still the owner is the person that is providing that liability. Yeah. Implied ability. There was some weird word that I was Yeah. That's that sounds like a fake word. Implied ability. Implied Hang on, I can find it because it was in one of the definitions. Impliedly, that was it. They impliedly warrant. And I'm like, that seems weird. That doesn't seem like a real word. But I showed up in a bunch of different places. If somebody scrabbled that word, 100% challenge. Yep. No joke, (laughs) right? It's not coming up. That case is really interesting in in regards because, you know, what happened is somebody was working for the government and they installed stuff at a shipyard somewhere exactly the way the plans called. And then 
it was a sewer line or something. And then when the tides changed or something happened, it got rained or something, it all flooded and caused a bunch of damage. And they were like, the contractor was like, but we did it exactly how the plan's called. How can we be responsible for something when we did exactly what they told us to do? It's just what they told us to do was wrong. Yeah. And so that's how it ends up now. So it actually started, the implications of it started only on governmental contracts and it has slowly over time crept into pretty much everything. Yeah. Well, I will tell you that as I have gone through this process, despite how it's defined, like the words, delegate design, design assist, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. It really just comes down to our projects are getting harder and more complicated and more expensive. There's more consultants. There's more clients. There's more people who have a say in what happens. So this is all about leveraging people with specific knowledge and skills to do the very best possible job to mitigate things going wrong. Because you're putting ownership and responsibility into the hands of people that this is what they do. That's the idea of it. And you know what? That's really not that much different than what I was doing when I, you know, 25 years ago. Bars was like standing outside in someone's front yard having a conversation. Yeah. And we're just like, we get along well and <laughs> we're going to work this out. Yeah. Well, you know, I think for me to, if we're looking to sum it up, I think the easiest way to think about it is that delegated design in essence, pushes liability off to the contractor. It happens later in the process of design. Actually, the design happens after we're done with the work mm -hmm. in delegate design. But we end up ultimately sacrificing some control over what the design is because we're giving that away. Sure. Or I think the design assist is actually a little bit of the opposite because it happens earlier in the process and that liability is still ours, which then in turn actually means we still have a little bit more control over the design aspects of what's happening. Yeah. One of them is kind of give and take, and the other one's kind of a take and take or whatever, a give and give, whatever <laughs> you want to call it. But AIA now has contracts for design assist services and delegated design services and all these sorts of things. So, I mean, there's some legal precedent for it, I guess, and contracts that are in place that you could look at for AIA if you even want to learn more about that. Well, it's... If you feel like you need to go to sleep or something... <laughs> <laughs> well, you should, because I, I was talking to somebody at another firm in town, and they said something like 70% of their spec sections include some sort of reference to delegated design. 70%. That's interesting. When I was doing some research, I saw that they were mentioning metal framing, like for partition walls and stuff, as delegated design. And I was like, yeah, okay, I guess so. That seems weird, but... There's a lot of weird things that Kat came across where they're talking about delegated design. I was like, why would you need to do that? Yes, because they're like, because we can, you know, it's all. Yeah, I know. Okay, so this show was fact-filled, heavy, and so we're going to do a Would You Rather to end it out. And I had two that I was trying to choose from, and I flipped the coin, and this is what we're getting. Andrew has not, he hasn't heard it. So this one is. Would you rather have unlimited first-class airline tickets or unlimited meals at one restaurant? Oh, um, I think it's a pretty easy choice for me. I would go first-class airline tickets all the way. You think? Yeah, yeah. Because there's variety. At one restaurant for forever, at some point, it's going to be like, I've had everything on the menu 17 times. Uh, I don't need to do it again, you know? I mean, I guess it could depend on the restaurant if somewhere it rotates, but... That's right. You're not going to choose Bob's <laughs> Chicken Wing House. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to choose the Burger Shack, and that's it. The burgers don't change. No, 
I would choose some really high end nice restaurant, right, where they rotated the, the menu. But I don't know. I still think that the the first class flights any any time that's that sounds like way better to me. You know, it does. But here's the consideration that I think is important. You could choose Cheesecake Factory. They got eight billion things on the menu, right? <laughs> number number one. They have a four hundred yeah. page menu. Yeah, and the likelihood, like, how many trips on a plane are you going to take in a year? I mean, most of us don't have that much. Is it only for one year? No, I'm just saying I'm stacking up. Okay, 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 okay. I travel a fair amount, but fair amount for me might be four plane trips a year. Mm -hmm. I I mean, just I'm a regular person. Most of us are regular people. We're not people that travel for work. So they're like, yeah, I'd want to fly first class because I'm on a plane every single week, once or twice. Totally get that one. True. But if you're that person that goes, I only get three or four weeks of vacation a year. And sometimes I'm going to be in my car going to where I'm going. But even if every vacation I took required me to get on a plane to go, four benefits a year. Now, granted, they're good benefits, but it's four. And if you chose a restaurant, yeah, you could eat there once a week, which doesn't sound bananas. No, I, mean, I think two or three times a week would be, I mean, depending on what it was, but yeah. Yeah. And you're like, okay, well, I'm, now I got 150 uses of my, of my choice. I mean, if it's per year, but. You didn't say per year. You just said... No, no, no. I'm just saying if you just kind of yeah, yeah. stack it up head to head. Sure, sure. Because the truth is you might choose yeah. unlimited first class airline tickets if you're 25 years old because you're like, presumably, I got 50, 60 years of tickets. And so that's going to be great. And yeah. I can't afford to buy plane tickets. So it changes the dynamic of the vacations I take. But now I don't have to pay for the ticket so I can go wherever I want. It doesn't say that everyone in your family gets it, though. That's a... Well, that was going to be a nice question. Is it just me or is, there, is it two tickets? But I guess for me, the inclination of when I heard it was, my automatic thought was, if that was the case for me, I would actually travel more. I mean, if I didn't have to pay for flights, I'd be like, you know what? I'm going to go spend the weekend somewhere here. And I'm just going to buy first class tickets to Chicago, right? Like, Or not buy them, but get them. It might constitute more travel on my behalf is what I'm thinking, if that was the perk that I had. Yes, which seems perfectly reasonable. Well, here's the thing. I go, this is what matters is when I go, I'm just going to go down to New Orleans for the day. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to fly out in the morning. I'm going to go goof off in New Orleans and I'm going to fly back that night. Exactly. Because the other part is not everybody's made of money. And if I made it a weekend trip, I'm going to pay $500 for a hotel. I'm going to throw in another $250 for eating four meals. And I'll make do with free breakfast in the hotel or whatever the case may be. So you're like, all right, every weekend trip, I'm $1,000. How many $1,000 trips can you take before you start going, man, this is hitting in my budget pretty good? Yes, this is true. This is true. Whereas you're basically making money by not having to pay for food. <laughs> pay for food. Right? So you could go, you know what? I might guess that's true. So that's what we're going to look at it, right? Another thing for me to consider should be like, I just don't want to cook this evening. Let me just go and... Yeah. I'm assuming I'm going to pick a nice restaurant. You know, it's like, I'm just going to go steak today because that's what I'm doing. So that's another wrinkle to the question is you go, am I choosing a really nice restaurant? This is some top quality, finely executed food. Yeah. Or am I just choosing some place that has food I like, but there's a lot of options? Or the Cheesecake Factory where there's like, if I want Italian, I can go there. If I want you know tacos, I can go there. If I want what. Granted, they may not all be great, but it's still a lot of variety in that instance, I guess, you know, kind of what you're getting at. I'm embarrassed to admit this. I've never 
Well, no, that's not true. I did once. I've eaten in a cheesecake factory once in my life. Uh, and it was because it was for somebody's birthday at work. And we went and it was like a phone book, the menu was. So I guess that's how I got my knowledge that it's a big menu. But I think I opened it up and I just chose something on the page. Because I was like, this is too much. It's too much. Too much. Yeah. I mean, I might have eaten there twice in my entire life. but I got like chicken Alfredo, I think is what I got. Yeah. And it was good. It was fine. It was a lot of food. Yeah. But I think you would have to choose some place that had a lot of variety. And I think that I would go for probably poor quality, greater variety than better quality, lesser variety. Uh, I don't know. Because you know, there's a couple of restaurants around here, I mean, that are on the nicer end. And they rotate. So they've got seasonal menus. So... And they change those up, you know, every season. So I think it, I personally would still probably choose that nice restaurant as opposed to the ultimate variety because I could get enough from that. Yeah, place. You're, I'm going to go steak tonight. I'll go pork the next night. I'll have salads and fish. Well, but I mean, if they've got eight different entrees, main courses on the menu, that's enough for me for a season. Yeah, you know, for three months, I wouldn't see myself going there every single day. So, oh, there's no way. Yeah, you'd end up in the hospital probably. <laughs> For sure, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I like the idea of first class tickets, but I would totally do the unlimited meals at one restaurant. That would be the way I'd go. Yeah. I mean, I still think I would stick with first class flights, but I could see the appeal. And I can see the drawback to it, like you said, because it, it would increase your economic impact, even though I'm saving money on flights in order to really use it. I'm going to be taking more flights and spending more money than I would if I didn't have that. Yeah. Whereas the flip side, there's no money coming out of my pocket for all the food. That's right. There's no money coming. And you know, you, you can go, I'm not really the hungry, but I'm going to go anyway, and I'm going to take it to lunch for the next year. <laughs> yeah. I sound so cheap and frugal right frugal. now. Frugal. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know. But I think that you'd also, maybe I have a different answer at my age than I would if I was in my 20s answering this question. Yeah, probably. Because we also didn't say, the question's not very fun if I limit it to just you. Well, maybe it's more fun because you know what, I'm less interested and going to Cheesecake Factory because I get to eat there free, but whoever I bring with me, we have to pay we have for to that. Pay all the time. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, you're like, I don't know about all that. But <laughs> if you said, all right, you and the people that are within your dominion, so your significant other or your your immediate family, they're covered by this thing. Yeah. I would definitely choose airline tickets in that case if I was young. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, all right, well, well, think about all the going to see mom and dad or grandma or going up here for Thanksgiving or going to spring break over there. Or, yeah, 100%. I would do that. Like, we didn't have that much money when I was growing up. Yeah. We did fine, everybody. Don't worry about it. We did fine. But I didn't get on a plane until 10th grade when my oldest sister went to college down in Austin. Mm. My first flight was on a Southwest Airlines flight from Dallas to Austin. First time I flew on a plane. Every other trip we took. Was there a time crunch? Is that the only reason you were on a plane or something? Because that seems pretty weird. There were five of us. All the vacations we took, we drove. No, I know. I'm saying like on a time crunch to fly from Dallas to Austin seems pretty weird. No, I was I was in 10th grade. Because just be driving. I don't even know if I had a license. So it was just I was just going down to visit my sister. And oh, okay. I got you. Southwest Airline tickets were $49 or something. It was yeah, yeah, yeah. like you couldn't afford to drive that <laughs> sure, kind of thing. Sure. So yeah. Yeah, so I would probably have different answers based on my age, I think. Oh, yeah. If I knew that small children are in my future and we were going to go vacations, I would be like, yeah, first class would be the way to go for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, I think I'm going to call today's show a wrap. Thank you for being with us today for episode 145, Will Delegated Design Kill Us All? 
Special thanks to our sponsor, Peterson, which manufactures pack clad architectural metal cladding systems. Visit pac-clad.com to learn more. We'd also like to thank our media partners, Building Design Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. Love the show so much you never want to miss an episode? Well, hit that subscribe button on your podcast player of choice and you'll get notified every two weeks when we publish a superb new episode. While you're there, please take a few moments to leave us a five-star, that's exactly how I wanted it done, rating. To get all the links and additional content for this legalized episode, head over to lifeofanarchitect.com. Check out all the other stuff the website has to offer. You can even join our community and add your voice to the conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.